Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 24th, 2023. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Christine's colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, Washington commentary columnist Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. So uh, yesterday... uh, a couple of interesting things happened in Israel. I'm just going to give a little preview because we're going to talk about it on Monday with Dan Senor, the author of Startup Nation and one of the most plugged in people I know about the Israeli political scene. Um, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of protests. Um, and uh, oddly enough, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the uh, the new and uh, the new the newly elected prime minister, even though he of course had been prime minister for almost the uh, entirety of the uh well for the entirety of the of the 2010s um bb uh legislation passed the knesset bb had been constrained from talking about the political issues facing the country uh because his own attorney general uh had um announced that uh he had a conflict of interest and therefore shouldn't be part of the negotiations over how to settle down the country in the wake of the proposals being made to change the nature of the Israeli judiciary. Uh, If you want to know why uh, that happened, you will now understand why many people in Israel think that some of the methods and methodologies and systems of government in Israel need to be reformed such that the underling of the prime minister, the attorney general, is in a position to order the prime minister, what he can and cannot do in regards to negotiating over his own government. Now, remember, as you hear about this and read about this, that uh, this all followed an election that uh, Netanyahu's coalition won. So the election is over and the Bibi coalition won. And ordinarily, when a coalition wins an election and it runs on certain types of things, and particularly in a parliamentary system where there are very few checks and balances, and you have a you have the legislature is also the executive branch, or the executive branch and the legislature are kind of co coterminous. The party, the new party in power, gets to pass its legislation. <laughs> like that's. That's how it works. And uh, a lot of people in Israel are now objecting to the results of the election, this very simple democratic fact, which is that you win or you lose. And then if you win, you exert your will uh, for the per- for the people in your coalition. And one of the many issues that was adjudicated in the election was judicial reform. Um, and yet hundreds of thousands of people are in the streets every every Saturday night and yesterday during the day and what was called like a a day of disruption or a day of destruction or a day of defunction or something like that closing down highways like taunting the cops into using water cannon and all of this so it's like a you know it's like the pussy hat rebellion against trump except it's much larger it's sort of in size terms it's more like the george floyd protests but remember, they come after the election, not before the election, and they're all they are all claiming that the new coalition is going to institute fascism uh, in Israel. 
Okay, so what happened yesterday was that a new piece of legislation passed that makes it harder for uh, for the the prime minister to be compelled to step aside, following in the precepts, by the way, of our own twenty fifth amendment. So um, there was a there was a thought that the that the Israeli Supreme Court, which is the subject of a lot of this controversy, could actually order Netanyahu to take a leave of absence. Um. And uh, because he is uh, under indictment on these three, two or three extremely bogus charges, by the way, but we don't even have to deal with that. Um, and uh, the new the new law basically says that you need a two thirds vote of the Knesset to impose a leave of absence on the prime minister, which, again, follows along a temporary leave of absence, which follows along our own. 25th Amendment rules, which involve people close to the prime minister invoking the 25th Amendment on grounds of incapacitation or other things. But the bar, there are various bar, but the bar is incredibly high in order to in order to interfere with the will of the people in that fashion. Seems to me to be a perfectly legitimate piece of legislation, unless what you want is to have somebody get the guy out that you hate and as we know in america and other places now uh the ends really do justify the means so people hate bb they want him out okay i'm just going to finish with this and then we'll talk about this more on monday um the coalition got elected to pass judicial reform judicial reform in israel takes various forms uh the most controversial proposal involves the Knesset, the legislature, being able to overturn Supreme Court decisions by a simple majority vote. Uh, I think we can all understand why that is problematic, uh, because, of course, any Supreme Court decision that goes against the will of the, you know, of, of, of the party or the coalition in power can simply be voided uh, as a part of uh, ordinary run-of-day politics. And, and Israel is a problematic has a problematic system because there are very few checks and balances built in to its own system. It doesn't have a constitution and it does not have all that long a tradition. And therefore it doesn't have like the British eight centuries of common law tradition. And you can see why that bar should be higher. But the other part of judicial reform is changing the way that the particularly the Supreme court is chosen, uh, which now the lion's share of the power in choosing who is appointed to the Supreme Court belongs to totally unelected bodies, including the Supreme Court itself, which plays a role in naming current Supreme Court justices and naming whoever is going to replace them and restricting the power of the elected representatives of the people to have the majority say in how this happens. Um, in our system, of course, the president nominates, the Senate confirms uh, or rejects the president's nomination for federal and, and the Supreme Court, federal courts and the Supreme Court. And in Israel, the Bar Association and the Supreme Court have most of the power in choosing court nominees. And beginning in the 1990s, the Supreme Court in Israel began to arrogate itself the power of judicial review with absolutely no elected document granting them that power. we One can understand why you would want 
there to be judicial review or to be checks and balances in the Israeli system. But in a, in a, in a, in a system that is not a um, aristocracy or an autarky or an oligarchy, some guy who has the title of Supreme Court Justice granted him by the Wizard of Oz doesn't get to say, no, I don't like that piece of legislation. It seems unreasonable to me. We're not going to allow it to go forward. On the basis, what is the legitimacy of that Supreme Court power? So the main part of judicial reform involves bringing the Supreme Court nominating process to a greater degree under the ambit of the elected politicians who represent the people of Israel. And this is when you hear people say he Bibi is imposing fascism. These are the two main proposals that are that are the fascism that is being imposed. One, that the elected officials in Israel should play a role, should play a larger role, the largest role in choosing the members of the judiciary. And the other is whether what, what at what level the Supreme Court itself has a check on its own pretty limitless power that it has arrogated to itself. And the I think almost everybody believes that the as it called the overhaul the um the override override is um is problematic and it's in in the form that it is now going through slowly going through the Israeli Knesset. But anybody who tells you that the judicial reform proposal that involves how the 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 justices are appointed uh, that that is fascism is uh, either doesn't know what they're talking about or is a disingenuous liar and just hates Bibi and doesn't like the right and wants the Supreme Court to have the power to check to check its rise because they don't like it. And uh, may I make an observation? Yes. Um, well, among the people who are is who are very critical of the uh, judicial reform uh, working its way through the Knesset is uh, President Biden and uh, his ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides. And uh, his favorite journalist, Tom Friedman, uh, and they all have been um, warning Bibi uh, from embracing judicial reform and from passing it in its current manifestation. Clearly, their hearts are with the demonstrators. And yet, um, this is the same President Biden who uh, instituted a Supreme Court commission in the United States to pursue judicial reform. Uh, which, which, I mean, the final report of the commission didn't really endorse any radical changes to the Supreme Court, but still, this is a live issue on the Democratic Party. So he's condemning Bibi for pursuing the same policy in Israel that the progressive left would like to see pursued in the United States. Uh, and then one second, uh, oh, also, he's condemning, he's fixating on Bibi when, um, you know, you, you were mentioning the days of rage in Israel. They're not, I mean, you know, they're closing down highways. It's extremely um, uh, inconvenient uh, and disruptive. At the same time, if you look at the protests in France right now over Macron's unilateral um, entitlement reform, raising the retirement age on his sole authority, which is granted to him through the convoluted French constitution, where's the outrage from from biden where i mean those those protests in france are getting very violent they're 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 much more they seem much more intense to me than what's happening in israel at this point 
And more, moreover, our neighbor to the south, um, AMLO, uh, Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, he is literally gutting the Electoral Commission as we speak past few weeks. He is trying to change democracy such as it is in Mexico in a way that will ensure him uh, either a lifelong rule or his party. Crickets. Right. Well, okay. So basically Biden's uh, coalition, Biden's own coalition or his own ideological coalition, as we know now from polling and all of that, um, is becoming more and more skeptical of of Israel and more and more supportive. Though I don't know what this means because we can get to, again, this is a larger question, but that now they're more in sympathy with the Palestinians and the Israelis. I, I don't think anybody knows what that means. Uh, it's not as though that has policy implications. Nobody knows what the Palestinians want, who they are, what their government is, what they're, you know, what they seek. They don't seek anything. So you can say I like them, but it doesn't really mean anything. But Biden is Biden lives in a world in which not only um, are people more and more um, skeptical or hostile or whatever to Israel, but um, the uh, Israeli left wants American intervention on its side to put pressure on Bibi Netanyahu. Now, what do they want pressure? What's their goal? Um, Their goal is to humiliate Bibi, to bring this premiership down in some fashion before it even begins. And that's what people have to understand is is that there's no end game for the people who are opposing these reforms because... Bibi, who, as I said, been constrained from negotiating, he doesn't want the judicial override. That this is a this is something that was brought in basically by uh, other partners, other people in his coalition. He would be happy to have a judicial override number that was way higher than the simple majority of sixty-one. I believe. And doesn't even mind necessarily that there's pressure, international pressure, helping him along. But helping that go along of either suspending that part of the judicial reform or changing the nature of it in a negotiation so he can claim that he negotiated. They will not negotiate. The other side, Yair Lapid, who was running the opposition, has basically said, until you call a halt to all judicial reform proposals... We will not negotiate. Well, who the hell are you? You lost the election. You lost. They can just pass this. They're hesitating because there's banking and uh, investment. There's all kinds of things going on that are that are worrying to Israel's economic future in the terms of a kind of internal and even external semi-boycott if this passes, which is one of the reasons that Bibi is so nervous about it. Um, but he is totally not only within his rights, but it's a, the natural progression of things that this bill will just pass. They have a three seat majority that translates to a 4% majority. It's not a landslide, but it's not, you know, it's not five seats in the house like Republicans have right now. And they're acting like they have the right to overturn the will of the electorate simply by street action. And, well, yeah. Well, they are, sa- they are chanting 
we will not stay the, the, it's called the, they call it a day of paralysis is the term that I, yeah that's really I, a really wonderful yeah. thing to call we're paralyzing our country yeah. and they are chanting we will not stop until bb surrenders i mean talk about anti-democratic they they, they it's it, to the extent there is a goal it is to get the mob to unseat the head of state yeah i mean and they can't they're they can't get the the only way that the coalition comes down. Let me just make this clear: is if BB negotiates with them so much that the members, the out the the members of his coalition who want a lot of these reforms, bring the government down because they think that he wussed out and that he sold out to the left. They can't bring the government down. There aren't enough of them. Not only aren't there enough of them, he's got sixty four seats. He would need to lose four for the government for there to be a, a, a no confidence motion. They can't stop it. He's he. They are slowing it down. They have slowed it down. It could have passed already. They want him humiliated, and you can understand it. They have sort of this weird upper hand in terms of a lot of. Uh, public opinion outside of Israel that is ostensibly friendly to Israel. But um, obviously we don't have any voices here that are sort of like wildly sympathetic to necessarily uh, to the opposite. A lot of people, a lot of friends of ours, it's very never Trumpy. A lot of people that I know and have respected for, for many years, uh, you know, in these battles over, over the way people view and talk about Israel are on the other side of this conversation, are terrified by the judicial reforms, are terrified by the assertions, the, the power assertions of this new coalition. Bibi thought what he was mostly going to have to do when he came into power was deal with efforts to change the status quo on the West Bank and with the Palestinians. This, this The fact that the battle is over the judiciary sort of came out of left field um, it is. It so, is. yeah, mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting um, just as listening to you. And of course, I've been studying this issue for uh, for months now. It, it's interesting how Israel's politics are more like America's, right, where you have kind of the the coalition that's in power is basically people who are the uh, the outs. You know, they're they're the religious, they're the settlers. And they're uh, the Likud, uh, which is the center-right party. But of course, the center-right party doesn't have any of the cultural cachet of the center-left or the far-left in Israel or in the United States, right? So uh, America, the, the politics in Israel with the street demonstrations and um, the arguments uh, over um, Bibi and democracy, all of that is coming to resemble America, American politics. But Israel's system of government is kind of working its way to, to toward an American system. It's not there yet, but you see, out of this out of this debate, you've had obviously its role over the judiciary. A lot of these reforms are intended to make the Israeli judiciary more like the American judiciary, right? right. You have the role of the president, the Israeli president, which typically has just been a ceremonial position, but President Herzog has taken on a much more active role. In this debate, he's given speeches. He's outlined a compromise plan that's been rejected, but he's acting actually much more like an American president. Um, right. 
And ideally, you would have a situation where this leads to something resembling a written constitution for Israel, just as America has. Uh, but the fact that Israel lacks one, I think, is creating such a, a, a combustible moment. Absolutely. That is that that is a that is a key element of this. And the other key element is that um what the left seems to want is this uh aristocratic body uh that is not accountable to anyone to have the final say over the government's direction. And that's not tenable in the long run. I mean, this is they've been and so uh, whether or not you hate Netanyahu and you think he's a crook and he should go to jail and he's been too long in power and his his ideas about Palestinian sovereignty or the West Bank or stuff like that are terrible and awful. Um, this is not the, what, what has happened here is what they want is for everything to remain the way it has been over the last 25 years. And that's simply not going to remain the case. And why do they like it? They like it because the judiciary is completely captured by by a fading elite in Israel, the Ashkenazic elite. There are 15 Supreme Court members. Of them, two are from the Mizrahi or Sephardic camp in Israel. That is the Jews whose roots come from uh, North Africa and Spain, uh, who make up 55% of the population of Israel. And yet, 13 out of the 15 justices, and this has been true since the founding of the state, if if not all 15, come from the uh, Ashkenazic, that's the European European Jewry, that, you know, that basically w- built the government of the country and ran the country for the first 30 years of the country's existence and was a much larger uh, population of the country until the late 50s, early 60s. Anyway, just think about that just for a second, that you have an unrepresentative body that is made up, 90% of it is made up uh, of, of of a minority, from a minority group, and it is self-perpetuating. It elects, it nominates itself, it elects itself. There's a professional body, again, that's like the American Bar Association that helps pick, and so does the judiciary itself. That's not sustainable. And and it's not good. It's not healthy. And it's you know you think this is unhealthy that that the Knesset should have no check on it. You're right. Write a constitution, create a bicameral legislature, or create a judiciary that is properly responsive, or, or you know it has the imprimatur of the people on it, and move on from there. Anyway, so let, let's let's drop this because we're going to get into we're really going to get into the weeds. This if this doesn't seem like it's the weeds, we're going to get into the weeds. On Monday with Dan Sinor. Um, TikTok. Yesterday, TikTok, uh, Mr. Chu, the uh, CEO of TikTok, uh, spent five hours before the House. Um, and like all House hearings, uh, the House, these hearings are so contemptible um, that, you know, after a while, you really start feeling sympathetic toward Mr. Chu for, you know, getting yelled at by all these uh, congressmen who are just reading off pieces of paper. And don't even know what they're talking about. Uh, that said, uh, I don't think he performed very well, though he's very smooth. Christine, you're you had a favorite moment. Uh, first of all, I have no sympathy for him, so I don't think you should okay. feel any sympathy for him. The the idiot of our elected, yes. hearings when a guy is sitting there 
and 20 people are yelling at him. I know, you know? that's what he signed up for when he became a CEO of a social yeah, yeah. media company. Well, and, and it should be pointed out that what was distinct about this hearing, you know, uh, Congress loves to drag social media CEOs in front of it and scold them. And they kind of do that instead of actually coming to any sort of legislative uh, agreement on regulating them. But in this case, we might actually see something come out of these hearings. Um, I had a couple of favorite moments. Uh, my favorite moment, though, was when he was asked if the if if China's uh, the government has access via ByteDance to to data of Americans and any users of TikTok, and wouldn't that be considered spying? He's like, I wouldn't call it that. He he refused spying to answer. Spying is such an ugly word. Spying is a really ugly word. Let's just call it peeping. I don't know what you would call it, but he he performed badly. So the, the one bit of background I think listeners should know is that. He was he was being prepped for these hearings by a Democratic lobbying firm. I think it's SKDK, Anita Dunn's firm. So so a very high profile Democratic lobbying group, lots of Biden administration officials who've moved back and forth between administration and this lobbying firm. So they prepped him for this hearing. He should ask for his money back. He did a terrible job. He was unprepared for the most obvious questions, questions we were discussing yesterday on this podcast and everybody who follows the tech world has been ruminating over for for weeks now. So he wasn't ready. One thing he tried to do is make TikTok TikTok part of a broader social media uh, argument. So he was saying, look, we, we we have recently put in science and math videos. Uh, isn't that great? Oh, we really, we want to make sure that we keep kids safe. We want to do all these things. But he, TikTok is, is got a separate set of issues, national security-based issues, issues about or surrounding China, obviously, that don't make it um, the same thing as Instagram or Twitter or any of these other social media p- platforms that people use in the U.S., Countries like India have banned TikTok. Other other large uh, countries have banned TikTok. So he was trying to make it sound like, oh, you just want to ban all social media, which isn't the case. And he really had no distinct answer to the most important question, which is, do you take your marching orders from China? And he tried to argue that, oh, we'll set it this up as an independent thing using Oracle service, blah, blah, blah. No, right before his hearing, China says, yeah, we don't really, we're not really keen on a sale of of. TikTok. Like, we don't want that to happen. And then he had to sit there and testify as to why that happening is the reason why no one should be concerned about China's influence. So it was just a debacle. Um, And I mean, I guess it it could have predictably been considered so. Uh, I think there was weird sort of hedging on the part of some tech reporters in the media, mainly at the Washington Post, that were trying to argue that that TikTok CEO was treated so unfairly. And, oh, all these dumb congressmen who've never used social media platforms, they're just they just don't know what they're talking about that seemed craven in the extreme and and highly questionable as to their editorial judgment to let that kind of of obvious bias play out. So it was sort of fascinating. There was a, a, a responses at CNN, too, that were, um, I thought, similarly yes. um, shameful. Um, and the, the whole idea is that, well, you know, um, these politicians are grandstanding about things that could happen, but none of it has happened, um, as if we should wait until there's this sort of, you know, mass digital Chinese spying event and then act. Uh, by the way, I'm sure it has happened. Uh, one thing that, that struck me was uh, the bipartisanship on display. Uh, you know, I have a column in the current issue of commentary about how the bipartisan front against uh, China uh, probably won't last. But it held up yesterday. That's yeah. for sure. Um, uh, there was a lot of... Um, agreement. Uh, Dan Crenshaw, congressman from Texas, uh, at one point thanked Mr. Chu, said, you've brought the Republicans and Democrats together, uh, which is a rare thing these days. Um, And that suggests to me that some action uh, against 
uh, TikTok and its parent company, ByteDance, uh, will happen. You know, whether that will be the Thune Warner bill that I mentioned uh, yesterday, which would um, grant the uh, executive branch new powers to determine what to do with the company. There's a Rubio bill out there uh, that would also um, kind of force um, some type of closure to this issue. Um, and then there's this possibility of either uh, some type of brokered sale, forced sale um, to uh, a domestic U.S. company. There's going to be some action. And uh, now ByteDance will fight it in the courts. But if there's legislation behind it now, I think that um, the U.S. government's position will be strengthened. Yeah. And Thune and Warner actually issued a really useful statement, part of which uh, right after the hearings. And they said, you know, under PRC law, all Chinese companies, including TikTok, whose parent company is based in Beijing, are ultimately required to do the bidding of Chinese intelligence services should they be called upon to do so. Nothing we heard from Mr. Chu today assuaged those concerns. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, uh, people uh, and there are people in the media and of course there are uh, useful idiots for the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and even fellow travelers online, um, they have this image that we're dealing with the China of the early 21st century, where, you know, sure, there was civil military fusion. That's a longstanding concept. But uh, the uh, Jiang and Hu, the earlier Chinese dictators, they kind of let the market work. They didn't go after the companies. They just wanted people to get the party members to get filthy rich. That's not Xi Jinping's China. It's impo- it's it's ridiculous to think that Xi Jinping says, "Oh, I'm not going to interfere with ByteDance." That's the free market. There is no free market in Xi Jinping's China. It ByteDance, is, ByteDance's it is a founder was yeah. Yeah, yeah, ByteDance's founder was chased into hiding a few years ago by because he's being pursued yeah. by the government. Yeah, and so that just means it, because China has changed under its new leader. The George Washington of communist, the communist George Washington of China. If you see him, he's so t- people. I've always loved the fact that people ask, well, what made George Washington such an imposing leader? It was the fact that he towered over most Americans. If you look at Xi Jinping, yeah. even in the picture with Vladimir Putin from earlier this week, he towers over Putin. He's just, he's clearly a, an imposing figure, and he think he knows it. That that's the China we're dealing with, and we have to begin to change our strategies accordingly. Um, I just want to, so uh, the lobbying firm that Christine talked about uh, ginned up a bunch of witnesses uh, to testify to the uh, deep importance and wonderfulness of TikTok in every possible way. Uh, We had, uh, let me just uh, read off what uh, Time Magazine tells me, Um, a high-end car content creator, Daniel Mack, who has 13 million followers, adoptive dad, Jason Litton, also 13 million followers, Married moms Ebony and Denise with 6.7 million followers who came to talk about how much they loved uh, TikTok. Uh, in between explaining sodium hydroxide and attempting to become the first person to say twink in the Capitol Rotunda, they spent Wednesday trying to meet with their representatives, talking with the press and participating in at least one event during which congressional staffers could stop and speak with them during their lunch breaks. One of these... Uh, one of these influencers, Vitus V. Spihar, who talks to her nearly 3 million followers about politics and civics. Mark Warner saying, well, I know you like TikTok, but you'll get over it. You can just go to another platform. Man, 
Wow, what a burn. Also, how dismissive to say something like that. I would never say to you, like, well, Mark, I guess we could just pick another senator. Who cares who it is? He wouldn't like that. So now some idiot influencer is like, that's a nice Senate seat you have there, Mark Warner. Be a pity if something were to happen to it. I'm here propagandizing for the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese military. And you're, you know, I mean, it's astonishing. Like this person, by the way, does civics. So by the way, he's right or she's right in the sense that, yeah, like she's a Mark Warner is passing legislation and people don't like it when he runs for when he runs again for for Senate, they can vote against him and they can even rally people to vote against him on the grounds that he wants to limit their free speech or free expression or something like that. That's totally fine. That's what that's that's how our 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 system works. Um but uh you know this gangster tone be be a pity if somebody were <laughs> were to take your sentence away the way you want to take my TikTok away. Yeah, Abe uh, wrote recently on our website about uh why the studies that showing Americans are getting dumber. I think we have I think we have part of the answer in the it's rise of social media influencers. I mean, look, I don't mind TikTok. Rob Long wrote a piece for us last year about how he loves TikTok. And that TikTok is an interesting new kind of medium in that it is this ultra short form these ultra short form videos often a lot involving sort of dances and they're like one liner jokes. A lot of them is just a kind of quick hit dash spirited, funny, you know, sort of want, wanting just to amuse. And I have no problem with that. And even the fact that it's so short form, I think in the attention wars, it's not so terrible, but people may, may, may differ on that. So it's not the content. That's the issue. Mm. I, well, Look, I I speak from experience here because I went through and kicked a TikTok addiction. Um oh, really? it it is, I mean, Rob is recovery. right. <laughs> yes. Rob Rob is right to the extent that it is unbelievably entertaining, um, shockingly engaging, um, because of the uh of, of the length of of the of each piece of content. And because a sort of language develops between um, uh, 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 um, performers or whatever, they're sort of there's a, they're sort of responding to each other. They're latching onto trends, and and you sort of you begin to follow the 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 call and response aspect of it. And because a lot of it is extraordinarily innocent. I mean, there's everything from sort of, you know, animal videos to people who just post uh, uh, high intensity microscopic images of things. Um, that is all true. That's the problem. It is but, it is too addictive. Okay. But there's also content like the Kia boys who teach you how to hotwire and steal people's Kias, which here in D.C., a lot of teenagers as young as 10 and 11 years old have used that information to go and steal cars now i know that you know oh it's not the technology platform but the viral the, the 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 virality of this particular platform is interesting and and i will say as a conservative there's been you know libs of tiktok is a twitter feed that basically just 
trolls through TikTok and finds these crazy videos that self-described progressives or liberals and particularly sort of trans activists have used over the years to target young people because we know this is the platform used largely by the young. And that actually has been the p- sort of public service that that Twitter account uh, performed has has le- led, led to death threats and all kinds of outing of her. Like it, she, she went through a whole thing. But just showing the kind of average progressive content on that site has been horrifying to lots of parents because some of those people were their students, you know, kindergarten teachers, their kids, yeah. you know, teachers and 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 people who these kids were watching on a constant feed, as as Abe said, which once you start down one one of those feeds, you keep getting more videos of things you've already liked. So they were seeing uh, they're being inundated with content that that just kept them further enmeshed in sort of subcultures that although some were totally innocuous and fun others could potentially be seen as quite harmful okay so so my my uh my very weak defense of tiktok uh, as a as a as a medium has uh, been conclusively um uh criticized and uh, disproven but of course, none of that gets to the question of what the government's role should be with TikTok. I mean, there are two things that involve our, you know, our our polity. Like one is uh, if this is something that is uniquely um, addictive to uh, people who have not reached the age of consent, you know, who are 11, 12, 13 years old there may be a national interest in doing something to interfere with that. They do not have full free speech rights. They have partial free speech rights, according to the Supreme Court. They do not have, we restrict their access to all kinds of things, uh, not just in speech, but, you know, I mean, they can't, uh, this is self-regulated, but, you know, they can't go to an R-rated movie without an adult. They can't do this. They can't do that. They can't drink. They can't, you know, drive. And 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 their access to TikTok as a matter of governmental policy could be limited in the state's role of in loco parentis. That's number one. Number two is the national security implications, and that has nothing to do with speech. You cannot use. Um, I mean, there is a huge body of jurisprudence that says that efforts to hide behind First Amendment first the First Amendment does not protect espionage. Or, um, or you know, that like that is not that that's not the way it works. You you cannot destroy the system using the tools of the system uh, if you are caught doing so. And if we if we believe that TikTok is basically a giant espionage program, then uh, with with long range implications, uh, then that that vitiates the free speech argument and the and the you know free medium argument no matter how many lobbyists and just pay. one one point of distinction that the question about kids use of it and age limits right now uh, COPPA children online privacy protection act is really about gathering data and data privacy and how you can't target kids for advertising if they're under the age of 13 um, that lots of people think that should be that age should be raised with regard to social media problems that the data privacy argument is one thing but the actual harm these platforms causes a slightly separate question that actually does need to be and is being uh, in the states uh, legislated upon debated so any kid over the age of 13 is not protected um, in terms of even the data that's being gathered and that's the that's where the i think the concern about the impact on younger americans and the national security concerns can can meet and that's that 
they're gathering this data. Look, India banned TikTok, but ByteDance still owns all the data from all the Indian users before that ban went into place. That They have that. They have that information. They will have information on your 14-year-old, even if uh, a week from now, TikTok is banned for kids. So it's it, that's where I think they do. It's, it's two issues, but there are some points of connection, which hopefully more Americans are now aware of after these hearings. I'd also say, you know, it's not just a potential surveillance or espionage tool. It's also a potential influ- influence tool. I mean, think of all the havoc that was wrought by Russian agents purchasing a few hundred dollars of Facebook ads for uh, uh, Trump or, you know, Trump-related causes, or some of the ads were about Black Lives Matter. They were inter- anti-Hillary ads. But it's a few hundred dollars on Facebook, and it it's, it's you know warped our politics for seven years now. What if it's revealed in the 2024 that uh, ByteDance is pushing certain messages in order to influence uh, the the youth vote in the presidential election? This is, it's, it's, it's not, it's not an innocent distraction, right? I mean, there are innocent distractions. Uh, there are not so innocent distractions. There's the whole separate debate that Christine is involved in about what, you know, what is so, what is actual social media doing to the psychology of Americans, especially young ones. But this is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a technology that is intimately linked to the Chinese communist party. And so in today's world, I just, I I don't see how we can sustain it in the United States. Right. Um, I want to, I want to bring something up and this is the fact that this is even like a tender and delicate thing to bring up, uh, not in relation to this, but um, suggests uh, the, I don't know, was a thing about the world that we live in. Um, involves Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. Um, John Fetterman has been at Walter Reed uh, in residence at Walter Reed uh, following uh, his check-in because of severe depression for six weeks. Fox News has a story, apparently. uh, Chuck Schumer was asked about this Wednesday afternoon. Word out of Fetterman's office is he'll be out soon. Maybe not in a week, but soon. Um, I, I grieve for him. I mean, there's nothing more horrible than this idea of like a, a 53-year-old man at the sort of at the height of his, you know, having uh, successfully achieved something at the height of his career uh, coming crashing down emotionally, particularly he's got three little kids and, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a terrible thing, uh, to see, but, um, he was in the Senate for maybe five weeks. He's now been, uh, there was a shameful story in the New York times suggesting that he was being a full-time Senator while sitting in a psych ward at, at Walter Reed being brought stuff in a briefcase by his unspeakable chief of staff, Adam Gentleson. I say unspeakable because he spent years on Twitter representing a Harry Reed um, in a really vile, he was a particularly kind of vile, hostile, ugly voice of un- unpleasantness in a way that he did not have to be um, one of those people who actually was responsible for the degradation of Twitter over time. So I'm I'm not a fan of his, and because I'm not a fan of his, I don't believe a word that he says, and I don't have and no re you know he was bringing this in his briefcase, and 
Fetterman was, you know, approving new staff choices and all of that. Um, and if that were true, then he wouldn't have to be living at Walter Reed. Um, he's in Walter Reed, presumably because it would not be safe for him to leave Walter Reed, not be safe for him to leave Walter Reed because he is a risk to himself. Um, and people in that condition are not capable of performing their duties, whether or not they've had a stroke or not, and whether or not they are aphasic or unable to conduct conversations and all of this. And we are basically, we continue to be almost enjoined from discussing this matter. And uh, that's an amazing bit of jujitsu, because first of all, you know that that would not be the case if you were a Republican. And secondly, um, it is the use of the new understanding that we have that we need to be both um, compassionate and understanding of the nature, the degree, and the extent uh, to which mental health difficulties affect the lives of people around us all the time, that you are then put in a position where you are not allowed to say that, you know, one of the 536 elected officials in Washington is incapacitated not only by his medical condition, but also by his psychological condition. Is this really going to, is this going to hold? I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think so. We've, we've, we've talked about how they need the Democrats need that seat at least through 2024. He's the person in it. And, um, and also, I mean, it, it you he were mentioning vote. He, can't he can't vote. Well, no yeah. one can vote. What's what's oh, what's even true. weirder is he's not the only senator who's missing in action right yeah, now. Five, yeah, there are five senators, missing including in the head of the Republican conference. Yes. Who, yeah. you know, suffered a, a fall that seemed and a concussion that seems to this. I'm speaking about Senate leader Mitch McConnell or uh, minority leader Mitch McConnell um, seems to have been rather severe. I mean, he is still not out. Um, uh, they, they're continuing to monitor Mitch McConnell. Yeah. So, and then you got Feinstein and Fetterman. Um, uh, there, there are a few others, uh, a couple, well, yeah. uh, Chuck Grassley returned, uh, right. but I mean, yeah, anyway, so you have this, I mean, Fetterman's unusual in this case, because of course, Feinstein's almost 90, uh, McConnell's right. 81. A lot of this is the result of our electing this gerontocracy, right? Um, and of course, you can also say that the people of Pennsylvania elected Fetterman knowing that he had had this severe stroke. And therefore, if this is if this is an if this is an offshoot of what happened to him as a result of the stroke, the people of Pennsylvania had sufficient information to make that decision and chose him. And now we'll deal with the how 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 much he will be representing them was a was a was a choice that they deliberately made. Um, I just don't like being lied. I don't like being lied to. I don't like being spun about this sort of thing. When well, when I'm, Mark Kirk, the senator from Illinois, had a stroke in 2014, nobody pretended that it wasn't incredibly severe. I'm uh, I'm totally with Matt. It, it'll it'll go on. I do think there'll be some kind of reckoning after the fact, a sort of lo a, a woeful look back on how uh, um how, how on the degree of deception and complicity and 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 you know how 
how we all shouldn't have gone along with it as if we, we as if we're all going along with it. But look, you know, this gets to uh, another thing I wanted to bring up, which is so. Why isn't this a major issue? It's not a major issue because the media won't make it a major issue. Uh, and this is where this is where media bias works in a way that people don't ordinarily talk about. It's not that there's a meeting in the newsroom and people say, we need to suppress all the information about Fetterman's condition so he can get elected. It's all a question of connecting the dots or what you want to push aggressively. And I'm thinking now about the banking crisis. We're now in, in the third week of the banking crisis. And, um, and, uh, the banking crisis involved this run on Silicon Valley bank, the, uh, the condition that followed along in relation to signature bank that had that closed within 48 hours of Silicon Valley's, um, collapse. Uh, first Republic is in trouble. Credit Suisse was bought by whoever there was bought credit Suisse. These local, this question of whether or not interest rates are going to remain high, which they are since the Fed raised interest rates this week, uh, and thus continue to expose banks that have too much, too many assets in low yield bonds that are increasingly valueless because you can buy higher yield bonds at the same time at the same price point. Um, and I feel like. This is the major financial story of the last two years. And everybody is just, you know, it's covered. It's covered in the financial press. It's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. But you don't get the, the intensity. You know, it's not like, where are the stories about the depositors? Where are the stories about the people who are worried about their, you know, in Iowa, you know, somebody in a small town in Iowa who's in a regional bank and is terrified. And again, I just can't help but think, if Trump were president, a Republican or president, or something like that, there would be the where's Janet Yellen? What is going on with it? The FDIC guy. What are they doing? Where are they? Are they on vacation? They're not on, they're not doing anything. This is all this is all like clubby, chummy stuff going on. Right. Am I well, wrong? The, well, I mean, the bias works in it the bias works in an interesting way because I was thinking, okay, what's crowded out all the stories about the goings-on in the financial sector? And it is Trump. I mean, think about what the media would have been. Think about our podcast for the past five days, what it would have been had Trump not posted that truth social statement on Saturday saying he would be arrested this past Tuesday, which he wasn't. And in fact, the grand jury isn't even meeting on Fridays. And he's playing golf. <laughs> and he's playing golf. Uh, so it, the in some ways, the Trump obsession continues Uh Far past his presidency, uh, it related to his um, his legal future, and so that I think that that's an, it's not even necessarily a an ideological bias at work. It's just like a Trump bias. Let's talk about Trump because right. everybody finds him more interesting than um, you know bad bond deals. Okay, that's absolutely correct. However. What I'm saying is there's no political advantage to the liberal consensus in dwelling on the bank failures. Now, Elizabeth Warren, a certain type of leftist who wants, I mean, I, I don't even know what she wants, but let, you know, who, who, who she wants power. 
<laughs> I mean, she wants to get Jay Powell fired. She, I don't know what she wants, but um, but it's more like you know, what good is this? Like, wh- where's the good in covering this story? Again, there's no conspiracy. It's like the the roadmap of how to cover it under a Republican administration would just be vastly different. Uh, there would be a lot of what what individual little guys are being hurt here. Now, maybe there aren't any individual little guys being hurt. You know, it's it's it's, uh, it's complicated. Um, I just. I just think that one of the things that Biden benefits from is this refusal to create a kind of a fact pattern about the nature of the country and what he does and all this and sort of putting the, you know, connecting the dots, uh, which is just the the thing that people love to do toward uh, politicians and the politics that they dislike. So you see, there's a connection between the banking and the and the student loan forgiveness and and the moral hazard of the bank bailout and the student loan bailout. And there's a lot of bailing out going on. And there's a lot of making sure that contracts liberals don't seem to want to hold to contracts and things like that. And those stories aren't told in the same way, or they're not pushed in the same way, so that they're not in the forefront of our national well you're not even allowed to use that language to describe what's happening i think that's actually something the biden administration i i completely i I agree it's a moral hazard the way they're doing this but they've been very effective at using language in a way that um almost um de-emphasizes what's actually happening so you can't call it a bank bailout you can't call it you call it you know student loan uh forgiveness as if it's not actually debt transfer to the taxpayers who will end up footing the bill ultimately who didn't go to college all of these you euphemisms combine to make it very hard to craft that kind of narrative because we tell stories with words. It's the fact that you, you know, if you look at a lot of official documents coming out of the Biden administration, now you don't see the word woman quite as often. I mean, all of this is of a piece of a way to use the language of politics to to kind of denature our politics by by changing how we talk about things and not and the indirectness of a lot of these words and phrases and euphemisms doesn't allow you doesn't allow the average american who has a lot of information coming at him constantly to get to the point like and to connect those dots yeah it, i mean it d- definitely uh uh insulates him uh this this press mentality but at the same time um this week president biden's job approval has been going down. He's now uh, in the latest AP NORC poll close to his record low. So um, Americans are still feeling the facts on the ground, I think, and their assessments, the economy continue to be very poor. Um, The banking troubles, you know, may not have affected them directly yet, but I think it is out there. Um, the, the, The Fed's approach to inflation, it did have a 25 basis point increase this week, but um, it also signaled that it might pause, which means that inflation is likely to persist. So yeah, uh, it the press is out there. It's the it's the blocking tackle for um, Biden and the Democrats and for Fetterman. But uh, reality has a way of seeping through, I think. Here, a vote for reality. <laughs> reality against crushing morosity. Uh... Have a great weekend. If you like violent movies, go see John Wick 4. It's awesome. Love John. That's my tip. Okay. Uh, for Matt, Christine, 
and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.